Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Change on the Run podcast, where we discuss common change challenges and ways you can address them when you're short of time. And I'm your host, Phil Buckley. Today's topic is influencing decisions. The decisions that leaders make, in addition to their behavior, often seal the fate of a change initiative. Influencing these decisions is perhaps the biggest impact you can have on a project's success. So how do you best influence leaders as they are making these big decisions? My guests today are John Bradley and Carrie Bradley. John and Carrie, welcome to the show. Fabulous, thanks for having us, Phil. Delighted to be here. Happy to be here, Phil. It's great to have you here, and I know you've known each other and worked together for many years, but actually aren't related. John, how about I start with introducing you, and then I'll follow with Carrie. John has spent 25 years with Cadbury in the UK and Canada in a variety of roles, including sales forecasting, brand management, strategic planning, and running one of the UK's largest consumer research departments. John is the author of several books, including FMCG, The Power of Fast-Moving Consumer Goods, and Store Wars, The Battle for Mind Space and Shelf Space, in-store and online. Also, for multiple years, John was judging coordinator of the Cassies, Canada's premier advertising awards, after which he formed the Bradley Group with Carrie to offer bespoke effectiveness consulting services for brand owners and advertisers. Carrie has over 15 years of client experience in financial services, not-for-profit, and pharma in a variety of organizational effectiveness roles, including head of network strategy, AVP wealth strategy, and AVP sales effectiveness for HSBC Bank. In addition, Carrie has substantial experience in marketing, consumer relationship management, sales strategy and management, and operational and capital planning. I can only imagine how many decisions both of you have influenced over your careers in different industries, organizations, and leaders. John, let's start with you. What is your experience with influencing decisions during large transformations? Well, I lived through, when I was at Cadbury's, two or three major mergers with acquisitions that the company had made, and also a couple of uh, cultural changes where it would be a company-wide initiative to change the way that we, we did business. And the common factor I found in both of them to have an influence on the outcomes was firstly to make sure that you validate your inputs. By that, I mean that you show that you are on board with the overall initiative so that when you suggest nuances or maybe a change, slight change of direction or an alternate way of looking at things, people who make the final decision know that you're coming from a place of this is about making it work. So I always felt it was very important to be very enthusiastic at the launch of these initiatives. So to be in the meetings, to be asking the questions, to be a cheerleader for the overall objective. And then I feel that gave me license to be heard when I felt that it wasn't going to work in this area or there was a better way of doing that. Without that, you can come over as negative, no change, who moved my cheese, and, and then your input gets ignored. Yes, I've seen people who have recommended the best option of the way forward, but to have it rejected, not because of the integrity of the idea, 
but because of the assumption that it's coming from a negative place so that people are the contrarians against the project. Carrie, have you seen something similar? I have actually, similar to John, being part of a global organization in the past, you can feel when large transformations are happening on a global level versus a national level. And one of the things that I learned as I moved through my career is to ensure that you are having very real conversations with both your lateral key stakeholders and the vertical key stakeholders so that there are no surprises. And if there are objections that you're dealing with them up front and not in the moment when that decision needs to be made so that when you are presenting a plan or you're presenting your idea as input to a larger strategy, that all of those concerns or objections are either highlighted, dealt with, and you have key stakeholders on side with you as you're presenting your idea for that change. You have so much sales experience. I'm wondering, have you found that when you have addressed objectives up front, that it changes the tone of the dialogue with those that you're trying to influence or sell to from say scrutiny to solutioning? That's it exactly, Phil, because there are times when let's say sales or sales effectiveness could be at odds with operations as to how things are rolled out, how things will change, the impact of the people involved. And as long as you're aware of what challenges are there, what objections may come, and whether that's national or provincial, as long as you're aware of what they are and there's a plan behind them, then people seem to get on board quickly. But if there's, um, those are just left to be brought up at the final hour as decisions are being made, that's absolutely going to derail any progress. And Carrie, I'd love your thoughts about the, you know, the tensions across functions or departments and mm-hmm. you know, which can be just a, a massive derailer for any initiative going forward. What have you found that's been effective to get people on side from other departments that might not have the same passion or the same uh, desire to, to move forward and make a particular decision? One of the examples that sticks out or is burned into my brain, probably more than sticks out, is living through the 2008-2009 financial crisis. A lot of things had to change after that. So to, to get other areas of an organization on board, really what it came down to is, is our organization going to survive? Are we going to survive this? And if we're all decided that we are going to survive, then we all need to be doing it together. So as long as everybody knew that their voice was going to be heard and it was worth it to what they were bringing to the table, then that was a good way of making sure we were moving forward versus being at odds with each other, depending on departmental needs and objectives. Yes, I would imagine sort of that that combined objective, an urgent one would, would be a unifier. And, and John, what, what's your experience with the different departments? Because with, you know, just like Carrie, you've worked in very different functions within organizations. How you found that, like the whole dynamics of the, you know, the, the different work streams or the different silos potentially, and, and how do you manage that? I think it's a different challenge every time, depending on what change you're going through. A lot of the different functions are, everyone in those areas are experts at what they do. And when you are leading the change, um, it's a bit like when you work in brand marketing, you're never the expert in the room. You can be the expert on the process of change, but the implications of change, you have to recognize that the expertise is on the other side of the table. And your job, I think, as a change leader is to make sure that expertise comes across and you meet in the middle. That We need your expertise on what will work, what won't work, and my expertise on driving through change to create a better outcome for all of us. If two sets of expertise stay sat on different sides of the table, then usually it never works. 
Yes, I found that as well. And, and I wonder though, Carrie, perhaps to get your perspective coming into the middle, but most of the transformations that we work on, you know, they're urgent, just like the one you had in 2008. There's no time. It seems we're all behind. Everyone's been given their particular functional requirements as well as sort of the general management requirements to, to get to the other side and get back to profitability, for example. What do you do in that pressure cooker environment where, you know, technically or theoretically, we'd all get together and come in the middle, but everybody is stressed and, and everyone's under the gun to, to perform? So I think that's a, a good question and it even relates back to what John just said. Each time is different, right? Each change is different and each pressure cooker situation can be different. Something that I've found successful in my past is it, it's seeing who's around the table, who's already on side, who knows what needs to happen. And if there's others that need to be brought along, then you bring them along with you. But you'll quickly realize that some, some individuals or some functions don't want to be brought along. And if that's the case, it's okay to exclude them from this process. Because at the end of the day, if it's a pressure cooker situation that change needs to happen, change is going to happen. And as long as it's done in the right way, you may not have all of the parties at, around the table that are going to agree. But if the end goal is the change, that change is going to happen. So it's okay to exclude others that aren't willing to get on board with that change. At least I've seen there's no perfect world about everyone being completely aligned and moving forward. Karen, any thoughts? And then I'll go to John just about, well, mm -hmm. what's the quorum requirement? So let's say HR might not be on side and IT might not be on side and that's good enough because we've got the quorum to move forward and, and be successful. What does the quorum mean to you? So what the quorum means to me is the head of the business. So whether that's there's and there's multifaceted to each business. So the absolute head of the business, where does the profit center land? The head of that business. There's also the top of the organization. But a quorum to me would ensure the actual top of the business is in favor of that change. And if there's other functions, as you you mentioned too, whether it's IT, it's, it's HR, it could be operations, as long as we can get them to a 70% that they agree, then we move forward. Thank you, John, what, what's your perspective? Um, I, I would actually go back to Carrie's example that she used of will this business survive? I was always a, a huge fan of the way to increase the size of the quorum is to create a burning platform and and then dimensionalize it in very emotive terms. And I think that what that does, it recognizes that decision-making in most cases is more emotional than it is rational. So I've seen acquisition cases for billions of dollars go through on emotion when the facts didn't really stack up, but it still went through because people were emotionally committed to it. So, and I think what Carrie's example does is really show how that it makes it, it makes it a gut reaction are we going to survive okay everyone's jobs at stakes now it's not just about will my job change a little bit or a lot it's will I have a job at all that's an emotional reaction so being able to find that burning platform and and then to communicate it in terms which really speak to the heart at least as much of the head as the head I always found was it was a great way to get enough people on board that you're going to get the change through. Carrie, would, would you find the same? Like that, the whole, I find it really interesting, the emotional versus rational, you know, components of decision-making. What's been your experience? 
I absolutely agree that there are emotional decisions and then there's rational decisions. And one of the things John and I find in our current business as a boutique consulting firm is we have to now really, really ensure that we are on a rational decision-making path because we're not inside the business. We're coming in as external consultants. And the only way that we can help lead towards a new strategy or a new decision is rationally because we don't we don't empower the same type of emotion not being internal in that organization so i've seen myself change i don't want to speak for john i'd love to hear what he has to say but i think that we've now shifted so that we are much more rational decision makers than in the past when we had the luxury of being inside and being able to to make decisions sometimes based on emotion. I'll take it a bit further, Carrie, and, and say that I think what we've learned to do together is to be the enablers of more rational decision making for our clients. So it's very easy when you're a consultant with 40 years combined experience of this, that and the other to play the card of power of expertise. We've seen it before, we know what we're doing. That you, that's wrong, you need to do this instead. Uh, and that doesn't work. Um, what does work is being able to gather information from inside and outside the organization that the people who you're talking to either don't have the time to do or they don't have the right contacts or they don't even know what questions to ask in some cases. And then bring that information in and really take them on a learning journey so that they're making the decision they're coming to the conclusion that you want to recommend because you know we could, our expertise we're able to interpret this information faster perhaps in some cases uh so and then you play your, the power of the expert only at the end of the process which is about really how to go forward how to execute how to get other stakeholders on board um it's a real it's been a real interesting learning journey for us it's quite a different way of influencing decisions uh, and a more enjoying and empowering one, actually, than just mere power of position. Carrie, would you agree? I'm nodding vigorously here. <laughs> yes, I would. I would absolutely agree. It, it's been an interesting journey, and one definitely of learning. But something that's different as being the external consultant is, as soon as you have the key decision maker alongside with you and they're actually feeling a part of the process, the end result, yes, we are enablers and we're helping them make those decisions, but if they are part of the solution, the transformation that we've seen inside our client's business, it, it, it's quite different, right? As long as the key stakeholder mm -hmm. feels that they're on that solution journey with you, and that's by bringing them rational, internal and external information, and then showing them the way forward. And Carrie, I'm just wondering, when, when you made that transition from all your experience in the inside and then now as an external consultant did you make any mistakes and then john i'll go to you did you make any mistakes saying this is exactly the same process as i would take internally and realizing that it's not yes it's been humbling at times because there's times that you were able to get things done based on your personal equity in an organization or your title or your or what other people thought of you as an external consultant that is not the case you you need to demonstrate an absolutely a different skill set and the other humbling piece of it as we've learned along the way is we could have the best business aha moment with such a phenomenal fact that we've found that we know will transform a business but if we can't get that information into the right key stakeholders hands or the key decision makers hand 
or we give it to the wrong individuals who take it nowhere, it's lost because again, we're external. All we can do is help to equip these decisions and show a plan forward, but we're not in there every day living within that organization. So if we hand over this phenomenal fact or aha to the wrong person, it's lost. And we had a good example of that last year. We identified a $19 million cost-saving opportunity that was tangible, real, and a very clear path to how it could be realized. And we didn't get it over the line because we were actually too far removed from the real decision makers. So the people we were working through were working through somebody else who then worked with this board of 20 odd key stakeholders who would make the decision. And when we analyzed afterwards what went wrong, it was really about the credibility of one of those individuals in the chain with the level above them wasn't sufficient to be heard. Even with the best fact base, that person probably wouldn't get heard on anything. And it made us realize that it's, it's so complicated. It's not enough to know the right answer, the, the best way forward. You do have to work harder at how decisions get made, who is the stakeholder, what, what is the likely standing of this head of this part of the business in the overall business? Do we know? What have we heard? You have to factor those in as well. And sometimes you can't get there. Good decisions don't get made a lot of the time uh, and not for reasons of inadequate facts. Carrie, what's your thought? It's a great example. So I absolutely agree with John. And, and one of the things that we both, John and I have done in our past lives, as well as we've integrated into some of our training courses that, that, we, um, that we facilitate is really the idea of X-raying an organization. And part of the reason that we say X-ray an organization is to understand how change happens, how decisions are made within that organization, the timing of change. So when our budget's established, how does change happen? from those functional plans, things like that. And that's what we would call X-raying an organization so that you understand those because all of the best and brightest thinking and the best plan, if it is not put into the right hands at the right time within the right process, it's lost. That's part of our learnings that we, we like to pay forward now. I find that fascinating and, and perhaps good advice for people that ex are external like ourselves, but also people internally. You know, I, I've observed people that are trying to get things over the line and they're trying to make a decision, but they're going to the wrong people. And, and as you say, if you don't get the right information at the right time with the person that has the budget, regardless of how good the decision could have been, it, it might not pass through. So do you do this now, I'd imagine, with your clients as well as teaching them how to do it? Is this is the way to x-ray the organization before you even try to influence the organization? Absolutely. And the, the first piece of advice we give to everyone is read the company's annual report. They tell you everything you need to know, pretty much, in that they tell you what's important to them. They tell you how they operate, where they focus resources compared to their competitors, everything you need to know is, and it's staggering the number of people inside and outside organizations who don't even pick it up and read it. Especially when their department or the initiative they're working on, it could be a sort of a modernization technology, it's described to shareholders, but they haven't even read how it's being perceived externally, or in, and then they keep going on in their project plan, which might not link up whatsoever. Before we stopped having meetings in the flesh, uh, we would always have a first meeting with the client in their offices, solely because 
that enabled us to see what was on the walls. What communications are on the walls? The five priorities for this year, the three this is, the seven that's. And then that would enable us to, to uh, put in context what we were there to talk about within their overall company objectives or department objectives or cultural objectives. And again, you know, we'd speak to people inside the organization who couldn't tell you what was on the wall. Carrie, I'm wondering sort of when you do go in and have that first initial meeting, and again, what's on the walls, you know, speaks volumes of what's important. What role does culture play in the sense of how people interact? Does that guide you in decision-making at all? It absolutely does. So culture is an overarching piece of how I think decisions are made. But the other part of it for us is within that culture, what is the language that is used within that organization? Because as much as there's a common business language that we all share, each organization then does have its own language that they do use. So things as small as, are you looking for information from data analytics, business intelligence, business transformation? What is the language of that organization, because if you want to influence change or be a part of the change, you have to make sure you're asking for change in the right language so that they understand what you're actually asking for. And I think sometimes what people do is they forget that there are so many channels or silos within an organization and those, those ones that they aren't involved with day to day, they, they don't understand the information that's there and the language that's used within those other silos and how important that can be to facilitate change. Certainly. We've even had discussions around, well, what do you mean by sales? When someone says, what, you know, how, how many were sales? How, how big were sales last month? Well, what do you mean by sales? And it varies within organizations. We were working with a, a, a liquor company, a distributor in Canada, and the brands came from South Africa. And the debate around what is a sale? Well, was it the order from the liquor stores? Well, because we measured that. Is it what was put on a ship in South Africa? To set, because in South Africa, that's their sale. Is it what was sent to the liquor stores in Canada? Or is it what was invoiced, net of returns? There are four or five different measures. And we find in different parts of the organization, they're looking at different numbers. They have an absolute different number for how much did we sell last month. So to Carrie's point, understand exactly what they mean and assume nothing. So never assume that you understand what the person talking to you says that you think you know. So we find the naive question, what do you mean by sales? Or that actually is a really valuable tool in, in making sure that you don't make fundamental errors of direction when it comes to recommending change. Something that's always challenging I find is if you influence someone or a leader or a leadership team to take a, a certain course of action and they choose not to do so, do you think that there's another shot that you can go back and, and correct the error in your view that there is a better option or is it um, once the decision's taken, that's it? And if you do think that there's a way to go back, what would that be? Uh, well, I'll, I'll go first. Sure, I, I always so. used to tell my people when they were making recommendations, when we ran the market research department, and we'd make recommendations to the brand managers about what needed to be done. When your recommendation was not accepted, I always used to say, there's only two possibilities. Either you're wrong and they're right, or you're right and they're wrong. In which case, you didn't explain it properly. So have another go at explaining it properly. And now, of course, properly means to understand why your first communication didn't land, and rather than just speaking slower and louder next time. <laughs> but those really are the only two possibilities. 
that if the recommendation wasn't accepted, either it shouldn't have been accepted because it wasn't a good recommendation, or it was a good recommendation that was not explained in terms the recipient of the message could latch onto and buy into. Kerry, what's been your experience when it hasn't gone the way that you think is in the best interest of the organization? Actually, it goes back to what we were speaking about earlier, whether it's a, a rational decision or an emotional decision. And I think sometimes you need to know how the decision was made. So if they've decided not to proceed with what your recommendation is, that's fine. But you may not be privy to other factors and other influences or other budget demands that are happening concurrently to what your request is. So if you take a step back and say, was that the right time for me to ask for that? Did I ask it in the right way? And were the right people at the table? I think sometimes you do need to examine how you approached it and not to naturally assume that they were wrong and you were right, but really was your timing right? Did you have the right people there? Did you have the right support? And to go back at it again, just as John just said, don't speak louder and slower. <laughs> you need to think about how to approach it and present the same information, but differently. Did you have a key stakeholder who just wasn't there that should have been there to support the idea? Was there another another action item that was constraining the budget that didn't go ahead either? So now those funds have been freed up. Make sure that you're fully aware of what else is happening outside of that one decision that you're pushing for. You generally get two shots. Don't go back for a third shot. If you couldn't answer all those questions Carrie posed in two goes, you probably won't get it on the third either. And then you'll just be annoying people, which will make it harder the next time. Yes, it affects your credibility. And you know, we talked a lot about x-raying and, and post-analysis. Any, any thoughts about after every decision has been taken? And it, and it sounds like you both get together and, and do an analysis. A couple of questions that you ask each other in the sense of whether it went well or, or it went in a different way than what you wanted it to do. Are there any sort of that post-mortem questionings that you find are the most helpful? My thoughts without rambling, Phil, is you need to be self-aware after the fact. So if it didn't go your way, if you own a piece of that, let any ego go and just say, you know what? Uh, I, it wasn't me. It wasn't my day. I didn't articulate what I wanted to articulate or be able to look your partner in the eye, your business partner and say, you know what, we weren't prepared in the way that we should have been because we didn't know factor X about what we were trying to do. So I, I have no problem setting any ego aside to say that maybe it wasn't my day, it wasn't our time. Um, but I think you have to be very real about that after the fact, because if, if every time a decision doesn't go your way, you walk away saying they're wrong and I'm right, you're not growing, you're not learning, and you're not changing. One of the huge benefits of working in a partnership, and I wish I'd realized it when I was within large organizations, and I wouldn't have done so much myself, I'd have found a, someone with an equal stake in the outcome, uh, approach it together, is when you're both in the room, what, there's always one of you listening. You, you're, ne you're never talking at the same time. And what the listener can do is what I expect Carrie to, and she does is she will dive in sometimes and say, well, what John meant to say was, because she's better able to watch the body language of the people we're talking to, not under the pressure of having to talk to slides and where are we and what's next. And that, so it could be an actual real listener hearing what's coming over. Whereas when it's just you, a lot of the time you don't hear what you're saying because you have too many things going through your mind. Really, I wish I, in, in the big organizational changes in Cabris, wish I'd realized that, you know, 
you need a you need a partner you need a change partner and then many more of your meetings will achieve their objectives just because you're able to course correct if the meeting is slightly going off or the message isn't landing it's very hard when it's just you just reflecting on on sort of my past and wondering well why didn't i you'll get a partner like that more often. And, and perhaps it goes back, Carrie, to your comment about ego. Like, I'm, I'm trying to perform here. I'm trying to, you know, make my mark. And yes, but you're, you're only one person. And, you know, the, the blend of, of multiple skills and experiences will be far greater. So maybe there's that encouragement internally. Uh, I'm going to do it alone or, you know, hey, this is my chance to stand up and make my case versus you know, it, it truly is the, the team collective that will have the best response and the best outcome. And John, I'm wondering just uh, if there was anything, that, you know, sort of being short in time and coming in and, you know, influencing a quick decision. And you know, is there kind of one thing you would do to say, if I did this, you know, it will give the best results, you know, the 80-20 perspective of if I did this, I'll have my best influence on someone I'm trying to uh, sway into what I believe to be the best outcome. What would that be? And then Carrie, I'd love to hear your thoughts. The, the thing I was focused on when I was up, up against it in, in terms of getting decisions was to take no decision off the table. So to dimensionalize the consequences of not making a decision at this point in time and get everyone to buy into, actually the consequences can be far worse than getting the decision wrong half the time. I would actually put all my work into what will, what will happen if we don't decide today or this week or whatever is the time frame, and to dimensionalize that in tangible fact and emotional terms. And then once you've got no decision off the table, people are much more focused on the factual argument about which is the best decision. That's a great piece of advice because so many decisions, you know, the easiest decision is to defer the decision because there, there appears to be no consequences, whereas we know there's huge consequences. Mm. That's a great tip. How about for you, Carrie? What would you do in, in that pressurize? I can do one thing. What would you do? So it actually goes back to earlier in our conversation when we were talking about making sure that you know what other functions within the business, what their stake in this decision is. So for me, of my learnings of my past career is to make sure that whatever you're anticipating the biggest objection to be, that you have already solved that objection and you have a quote from the person who would have given the objection. So I have spoke to the head of operations and they feel that by making this decision it will make us better in this way so that you have something short and succinct to diffuse whatever the biggest objection would be by someone who's either a lateral peer or a vertical peer to the decision maker another great tip i, I wish i had talked about this to you like throughout my career for both of you <laughs> I been so much more successful and one thing i i reflect that that when i've, I've been caught um Often I found in these large transformations that, you know, the business case for change, you know, is, is front and center at the beginning. And once you get into implementation, everybody forgets why we're doing it. And it's almost the beast of the plan or the beast of the initiative. And are we on track or not takes over the reason why we're doing it. And what I found is by even just reminding, you know, this is why we're doing it. And if we go with this option, we'll be, you know, we'll be able to achieve that far better than others. Sometimes it gets people to step back and say, oh yeah, they, there is a reason for doing this other than, you know, we're, we're on this journey together. Um, so 
so many good good thoughts. And just in closing, and John, perhaps if I could start with you and then go to Carrie, is there one kind of, there's so many tips that both of you have shared today. Is there one sort of insight or uh, watch out or recommendation you would make just as a parting suggestion to the listeners that when you're influencing you know, big decisions with leaders, X. And anything comes to mind just from all of your experience? John, what would you say? Put yourself in their shoes. See the issue from their perspective rather than solely from yours. Great advice. Absolutely. It's so easy to take on our own perspective. And again, that ego comes back. Carrie, what would you say? I'm smiling because John and I sometimes share a brain and sometimes we, we are quite different. But on this one, we're very similar. My one very quick tip would be, it's not about you. It's not about you as an individual. It's not even a reflection of you as an individual. It's about moving forward and getting the change to happen and driving towards a decision. So taking yourself and your ego out of it and making it about what the end decision is in the end state. Another excellent piece of advice. And I'd like to thank both of you, John and Carrie. I've really enjoyed our conversation. So many tips. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank Pleasure. Thank you. That's great. Thank you very much. And I'd also like to thank our producer, Charlie Buckley, and to you. Thank you for listening. And if you have any questions or comments, please email me at phil at changewithconfidence.com. And for upcoming episodes, please subscribe to the podcast. And until the next time, I wish you all the best as you continue to lead change.